By the way, I was able to upload all of our teachings on the book of James yesterday, so we're caught up through there anyway. Uh, didn't realize we met 13 times on that book. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Uh, as you can see in our text, we're in Acts 17, starting in verse 22, picking up where we left off last week with Paul at Mars Hill. A little bit of background just to make sure we're all in reminder of where we are and what's going on. Uh, Paul had escaped from Berea and had been transported down to Athens by himself. And this city was considered still the philosophical center of the entire uh, empire of Rome, even though this was Greece. Uh, We have all the great philosophers of Greek uh, times like Plato and Aristotle and all those fellows all came out of this particular town. The architecture of Greece had spread throughout the entire empire. Now Rome, when they took over Athens and took over Greece, they moved the, the capital from Athens to Corinthians. To Corinthians. Corinth, <laughs> not to Corinthians. They moved it to Corinth. And so you have a decline in Athens as a powerhouse, and yet it still was a center of art, philosophy, etc. When Paul arrived, we see this back in uh, our text. Uh, his spirit was provoked, as verse 16, within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And there have been a number of historians, many of them from that time. One said it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. And if we figure out that there were approximately 20,000 people in the city, having 30,000 gods by one person's count, that was an accurate statement. This town is full of gods. One fellow put it this way. In their tradition of polytheistic mythology, the Greeks deified everything. There was a god of war, Ares, the sun god, Apollo, Hades, the lord of the underworld, Hermes, the messenger god, Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Zeus, the king of all the gods. And those were just the Olympian ones. There was also primordial gods, including Aether, the god of the atmosphere, Kronos, the god of time, Eros, the god of love, Erebus, the god of shadow, and many more. And then there were titans, and nymphs, and giants, a river god, and hundreds and hundreds more. No uneducated, no, no person in Athens could ignore the fact that there were gods everywhere. So, we have one of the great American theologians of all time just 10 days ago declared that all religions are the same. Her name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the (laughs) congresswoman who is such a genius. Anyway, she made this statement in some context that all religions are equally valid and they teach the same thing. You know, a 28-year-old knows exactly what she's talking about. Problem is, the president of Union Theological Seminary, Serene Jones, when asked about Ocasio-Cortez's statement, quote, to say our prayers ascend to the ultimate truth, the space of divine love, and we share in that space is not a nonsensical claim to make at all. In fact, it's one I would endorse. The president of a seminary. And then, of course, there's the biblical answer. The Bible is clear in the Old and New Testament. We have come to God as he's revealed himself. Going to heaven, having one's prayers answered, knowing who the living God is, is utterly contingent on having a personal relationship with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have now two opinions in our culture by two learned scholars, the one from Union Theological Seminary and this other, Alex McFarland, who is an apologist. 
And as this guy wrote, it's a common theological mindset that in today's multicultural world, Christians interact with Muslims, Muslims interact with Jews, and they all interact with Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and a plethora of other religions, and we all just want to get along. But there's an error in that line of thinking. As one professor at Boston University wrote, he was taken aback by the incredible lack of biblical knowledge of his undergrad students that he wrote, it's comforting to pretend that the great religions make up one big happy family, but this sentiment, however well-intentioned, is neither accurate nor ethically responsible. You have in Athens this seat of philosophical um, uh, thinking. They, they thought deeply about all the big ideas of life. And in contrast, because we think most philosophers today are godless, so that, you know, it's just the idea of work, work got out of the equation as, as, as best we can. They were hedging their bets in that they had every god possible to make sure that they had their bases covered. And many years ago, um, Wilbur Smith wrote one of the early 20th century uh, apologetic books for Christianity called Therefore Stand. And I found my old copy of that thing and I'm looking through it and he has an entire 30 page chapter on the Mars Hill speech. And you know, he's not easy to access as a, as a reader in our modern thinking but he made some comments that are just astounding. He compares the similarity between ancient Athens and modern America. This is in 1945, mind you. <laughs> For all the obvious differences in culture and language, there is a similar approach to the problems of life. There are three evidences of that similarity. He notes that the men of Athens worship the human intellect. They love newness, like new ideas, and they value tolerance and diversity among their ever-expanding pantheon of gods. So think about that in light of our modern culture today. We worship the intellect, science, and if, by the way, if you disagree with science, you're obviously an idiot. Um, I mean, that's just, we all know that. <clears throat> Not necessarily, depending on who the scientist is. We also have a pursuit of newness. Well, that's, that comes out of verse uh, 21. And the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Just like we do. We go after the latest fad, the newest idea, the latest viral video. And then our society, our culture values tolerance and diversity over anything else. I always find it interesting. They say, well, you know, if you are enlightened or if you are a social justice warrior, you believe in tolerance. So I want to say, well, we had it first. It's like we had the rainbow first. We, the idea that you, you know, you're not tolerant if you don't accept me is just simply on its head. Well, same is true today. We worship the human mind, love new ideas, and exalt tolerance. So what does that worldview produce? When you worship intellect, you get educated arrogance. When you love newness, you get restless dissatisfaction. And when you exalt tolerance, you get endless uncertainty because you're always seeking for a truth that you can never seem to find. Isn't that interesting to think of it that way? If there is no truth and everything is okay, then what in the world can you believe with certainty? Because each one in this room can have their own God and their own understanding of him. And then we're just supposed to all get along. 
The more you travel around the world, the more common humanity seems to be. Athens knew everything that was knowable, except the most important thing. She didn't know God. She also didn't know, know what to do about her sin, or where to find peace, or how to discover the hope of heaven. So which brings us to our passage today. We have Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a hill. Ares is the god of war. Pagas is the word hill. And the Roman god of war is Mars. So that's where we get Mars Hill out of the word Areopagus. And if you remember our maps from last week, you have the Agora. The marketplace is 40 feet so or so down in this little valley. Then you can walk up to the Areopagus, which is a flat area, fairly large, actually. And then you turn around and look up one more time, and you have the Parthenon, the Acropolis, the top of the city where the, the god of Athena was worshipped in all of its glory, and the Parthenon is still there today, and that's the icon that we see when we think of Athens. So Paul is standing What's important about his physical placement? What did a rabbi do? He sat when he taught. Paul is not a rabbi in the minds of these people. He's not among Jews. So he's not going to sit like a Jewish rabbi would. He is going to stand and orate like they did. They would stand before the council. They would stand before the Senate. It was a cultural difference, and so Paul does what an orator would do on this spot. If you remember a little bit from last week, on that Areopagus was where the Supreme Court of Athens would meet. It's, for lack of a better description, that's where they would make rulings. On this spot, 450 years ago, Socrates stood and was condemned to death by these people. What was Socrates' crime? Does anybody remember? I had to look it up. I couldn't remember. You know, I just thought, well, he was a teacher and maybe they didn't like what he taught. <laughs> uh, that wasn't the issue. Is that he refused to recognize the gods that were recognized by the state. And two of his students had fomented revolution in the city against the government. And so they brought the teacher, not the students, they brought the teacher to trial. And they voted, and it was a 28 to 20 vote, that Socrates must commit suicide. And so he did. He drank the hemlock, and that was it. But this is the spot. That history is known because that story is told in Plato. Paul would have read Plato. Paul would have known that, that idea of where he was standing historically is a very important space in this area. Now before we really start digging into this, I want to I do a little preamble. As I, I kept coming across various thoughts regarding Paul's uh, Mars Hill address. There's a, uh, a common statement made that Paul found common ground with his audience so that he was able to express the gospel. Now the gospel in, its, in this summary is not very obvious. So for one thing, that's not exactly an accurate statement. Um, secondly, the problem with the common ground argument is that many American Christians in particular take that as the idea then we need to immerse ourselves in modern culture and make everything that we do look like the world so that we won't be offensive to them and then we can slip in the gospel. I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it in magazines, you see it in churches, you see it in their literature, you see how they present things and I looked at that and I kept thinking, this is bugging me, because the word common ground is not a negative one, but I'm not quite sure that's what Paul was doing. 
I think Paul was finding a starting place, not common ground. He had nothing like these Greeks. He was Jewish. He was a rabbi. He didn't have common ground with these people. He was a contrast to these people. And I think now that for us, as our culture has continued to decline in its moral fiber, that Christianity has become the counterculture. And it's harder for us to find common ground with anybody other than the fact, well, we happen to be in the same work and, well, we happen to be in the same country, but your definition of our country is very different from mine, so even that is going off. So it's not a common ground making the playing field level. It's where do you start the discussion? And he started the discussion at a place where they could understand it. That's not common ground necessarily. At least that's how I look at it. It's a subtle thing, but yeah. Well, that reminds me a lot of, uh, of a good teacher. A good teacher has to realize there's going to be a bridge between where the student is and where the teacher is, right. and the teacher has to start on the student's side of right. the bridge. That's not common ground. That's right. a starting place but, to bring them over the bridge. And a lot of teachers don't seem to behave that way, and they'll just stand on their side and spout off, and nobody on the other side gets Or it. the teacher walks over the other side and acts just like the kids. Mm -hmm. And has nothing to teach them. And exactly. Yeah. And he's just one of the, he's the cool guy. Yeah. You know. And that, there, that's, a, it's subtle. But I kept running into it in my reading. And I kept saying, there's something that's bothering me. And that's where the idea of starting place came to me. Because when Paul was standing in front of the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, he began with a summary of the Old Testament. That was his starting place. He started there the audience had to say, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament. Sure, we know what you mean. And then he was able to expound after that. He found a starting place. Even though what his ultimate conclusion was so radical, he could not have started with the radical conclusion. They would have thrown him out at, the, at that moment. Well, they threw him out later, but that's another story. Um, okay, enough of that preamble. So he's... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he's there by invitation. They brought him up there because they were curious about this fellow preaching the, this guy Jesus and this, uh, this woman, uh, what, what, what was the name? Uh, uh, Anastasia. Hmm? Anastasia. Anastasia, which is the word resurrection. And you see in the last verse, he, it's to, uh, the last section, um, that it was foreign divinities in verse 18, plural. He wasn't just talking about Jesus, he was talking about Jesus and the Anastasias, which they thought, well, that's kind of cool, so the resurrection must be another God. Let's find out more. Anyway. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very desidemon. That's the Greek word which means very religious. It could mean very superstitious or very devout, depending on the context. We don't know which he was trying to point at, but the Greek for this, the first half of the word means sphere, the second half of the word means deity, so the fear of God. You are very religious. You, you understand that there is religion I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. By the way, objects of your worship is one of those another unique words in the New Testament. The only other place it's found is in 2 Thessalonians, where it's talking about the Antichrist, believe it or not. And if you think about it, very soon thereafter, Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians and used this same word in describing. The Antichrist, uh, let's see, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Same word, object of worship. Note he didn't use the word idols. 
could have, but he didn't. So he was, again, finding that starting place, and rather than throwing his objection to them in their face, he just went, you're very religious, and you have a lot of objects of worship. That's interesting. Didn't say, you idle, mongering, you know, spawn of Satan. You know, he didn't do any of that. He just says, you're very religious. I passed along, I observe all these objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You ever wonder what that looked like? Well, I found a picture. Believe it or not, this is an actual picture of a altar. This particular one is found in Rome. And the inscription on this is still there. Um, says in Latin, either for a god or a sacred goddess, Caius Sextus Calvin, son of Gaius, Praetor by order of the Senate, restored this. So in other words, the, the letters you see, the Latin letters up there, either for a god or a sacred goddess. In other words, an unknown god. We don't know who this is for. It could be for anybody. But this praetor made sure from the Senate that we had an altar to an unknown god. And so there's archaeological evidence that such a thing existed. This one happens to be in Rome. It happens to be part of the, um, you know, the Roman Empire. But over in Greece, you have, there had to have been a, at least one, if not many. Now here's an interesting little tidbit of a story. Let me find it. There we go. I had never heard this before. This one really surprised me. And I found it in multiple places, so I'm assuming that it's accurate. Apparently, centuries before Paul's time, and remember uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans that are mentioned, they all started around 300 BC. So we're at about 50 AD, so 350 years ago. So we go even centuries before that, right after the founding of the city. and as uh, probably the times of Plato and Socrates and all them. A plague hit the city and there was no cure. People were dying left and right and they didn't know what to do. And obviously they thought we need to appease the gods. That's the default reaction whenever something that is an act of God is seeming to be happening. We must be doing something wrong. And so a man from Cyprus, not from Greece, but from Cyprus said, well, the best way to do this is to take a flock of sheep, both black sheep and white sheep, and set them loose in the city, in the Agora. Just let them run loose. Let them run until they get tired. And whenever a sheep stopped, they would sacrifice that sheep to the nearest altar. That way they could take care of all the gods at once and at random and maybe they'd hit one right. However, if there was no altar nearby, they would build one, sacrifice the sheep on that altar and call it to the unknown god. That way they would take care of every possible permutation of the gods in this pagan act. They did this and the plague lifted. So they left all of those altars up. Because don't dare take down the wrong one. Isn't that interesting? They attributed their deliverance to one of the unknown gods. So they're everywhere. There wasn't just one. Yeah. Is that because they've already tried all of the altars of their 3,000, 30,000 Probably. First? Probably. I mean, they're just doing whatever they could, and then they said, well, let's just set them loose, and then we'll do another sacrifice, you know, to the, the god of whatever, if that's where it stopped. But if it stopped kind of in an open area, going, well, let's build one here, because obviously 
it's divine that the sheep got tired of that spot. There's still one sheep out there going, I'm free. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I found an an inscription to the unknown God. So what therefore you worship is unknown. And this I proclaim to you. And as I phrased it, instead of saying this I proclaim to you, he basically said, let me introduce you to him. Because I know who he is. It's pretty much, Paul has has recognized, he knew this as soon as he walked into the city and was provoked by all of these gods. You don't know who God is. You really have no idea. Let's talk about who he is. And the word unknown God is the Greek word agnostos, where we get our word agnostic, meaning I'm not sure, I don't know. John MacArthur said it's kind of interesting if you talk to someone who claims that they're an atheist, not an agnostic, that they're an atheist, that there is no God. You simply ask them, well, have you been everywhere in the universe? I mean, absolutely everywhere in all the far-flung universe. Well, no. Is there a possibility that you just haven't been to a place where he is? Okay. So in actual actuality, you're an agnostic. You just don't know. So let's start there. Don't say there isn't a God. Just say you don't know that there's a God. And then you start having a conversation. Now, it's not always easy talking to someone who is agnostic. They're either, um, what's my word here? They're meh about it. Like, they don't care. It's really hard to get through someone who doesn't care. If they're thinking about it, then they come to the conclusion that they're at least thinking about it and there's a starting point, then you can have a conversation. But if they're not caring, I'm thinking of uh, one of my author clients uh, is a church planter, and he planted churches, I think I've mentioned it before, in England for many years. He says it was tough, because England is not exactly receptive to the gospel. And he moved to San Diego and began planting churches, and he said it was harder in San Diego than it was in England. And it wasn't because of the anti-Christian, it was the we-don't-care attitude. They had so many other options that we could, you know, just even getting people to come to something, at least, he says, at least in England we were a contrast to a godless society that knew they were missing something. But in America, they're filling their godless hole with everything else, and we had no room, and it's really hard. I thought that was an interesting contrast in ministry. This particular book by J.I. Packer was the most important book in my spiritual life. I read it when I was 19 and it set me right side up. Beginning of chapter 3, he writes this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17.3 So what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, contentment than anything else? Knowing God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him that boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9.23 What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6.6 
God says, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This is the ultimate quest. And here you have a people who they will sacrifice to an unknown God. They don't know who this is. And God and, and, and Paul is coming and saying, I know who he is. And he can be known. Now, whether or not what we have here in Acts 17 is an exact transcription of everything he said is up for debate because Luke wrote this. Paul probably told him the story of being on Mars Hill. And if you were to read this sermon out loud, it's what, three, maybe four minutes? I suspect he was up there a little longer. Paul is not known for being uh, a paucity of words. (laughs) He could go on if he really got going. So, you wonder, did he pull out Old Testament passages? We don't know. He may not have. They might not have known that he was even quoting the Old Testament. But you find in 1 Chronicles 28, Verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plain thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Jeremiah 24, verse I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart Jeremiah 31 verse 34 which by the way is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8 no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And even Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God can be known. Now, I have another speech that I give, uh, and I, I go into the theology a little bit of this because we have to be careful. Because God, the divine creator, the omniscient, the all knowing, the all powerful, The scriptures are kind of clear that you can't get to him. I mean, we are just way down here, and he's way up there. He's unknowable in that respect because of the extraordinary greatness of who God is. However, and before you start declaring me an apostate, through his son, he can be known. God sent his son to be like us and to be the sacrifice for our sins. Through Christ, you can know the unknowable. This is where what Paul is saying says, you, you know, he, he's not bringing in Jesus Christ yet, he brings him in later. But he first talks about this idea of the unknowable God. And I have to say, well, yeah, I mean, he's just bigger than, I can't even comprehend. I comprehend the thimble size collection of who God is. But through Jesus Christ, that thimble becomes a cup, becomes a bucket, becomes an ocean. And therefore, we can approach God and be one with him. But 
we move on. Verse 24. Notice the first word in that sentence is not the word a. Paul doesn't say a God who made the world. He says the God who made the world. The cosmos and everything in it. Being the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, I just had to put the movie in my mind. And there's Paul. Remember, the Agora is down here. He's on this platform with on the Areopagus. And he says, the God who made the cosmos and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live. He gestures to the Parthenon. Could you see the drama in that? He's not pulling punches, saying, you're saying this, you know, this, this God you say is unknown. I know who he is. He can be known. And by the way, he doesn't reside up there. Isaiah chapter 40. Very familiar passage to many of us, but it's a one to keep returning to and meditating on over and over again. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And he does not grow faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. And in chapter 45, verse 18, he writes, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. These declarations are just headlines that you just simply can't ignore. Last week uh, in Pastor Jim's sermon, he talked a little bit about the, the size of the universe. I always love it when those concepts are brought up because your mind just is blown. And if you were ever an amateur stargazer or thought about traveling with Spock and Kirk, you know, the expansion of the universe and the distances. So I decided to dig around to see if I could find some illustrations when we start thinking of the size of the universe that God created. So first, you have to convert miles to inches. So our planet is the size of a plum. Three inches, maybe. Well, that's, 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 if that's the distance then the Earth is seven and a half feet away. So right about that third aisle right there. I'm sorry, the moon. The moon is about seven seven feet away from, from here. The sun is a half a mile away. The Earth is this big, the sun is a half a mile away. That means if we turn around this way, somewhere up we're near Bethany Home Road. <coughs> Missouri. Hmm? Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, a little past that. About five, it says 5.5 miles. Pluto is 22 miles away. The end of our, gal- our, our uh, planetary system. So that's on the other side of Ahwatukee Mountain. South Mountain. The nearest star is 156,000 miles away. Which means you're a little bit halfway from here to the moon if the earth is the size of a plum. And you just kind of go, what? It's just, it's mind-boggling. So I found a better illustration. 
if the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is 93 million miles, it's the width of this piece of paper. So this sheet of paper is 93 million miles. Try, just try to imagine that. Okay. So if that's true, then the nearest star is a 71-foot-high stack of paper. Seven stories of pieces of paper from here to the closest star. Our stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, the breadth of the Milky Way is a 310-mile stack of paper. And the distance from the Milky Way to the next galaxy, not the next star, but to the next galaxy of stars, plural, is a stack of paper that is 6,000 miles tall. And that galaxy is one you can see at night. You think it's a star when you look up. So that's the closest visible to the naked eye galaxy and of course the astronomers will tell you that there's far flung even more way beyond that. We keep looking at these stars and going, oh that's a nice star, and go wait a minute, that's a cluster of stars. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. All of that was made by him. No wonder the evolutionists try to work God out of the equation because they can't handle it. So they have to come up with a way to make it God-less. <laughs> I heard one description saying, yeah, the Big Bang. So what they're basically saying is that there was a pile of lumber and bricks and it exploded and built one of the finest houses ever with the fireplace in the corner and all of the nice rooms and all everything, it just kind of went boom and poof, there it is. Wow, isn't that amazing? Anyway, it does get kind of silly. And one of the problems with the fossil records and all of that are the gaps that even the evolutionary scientists admit are missing. Stephen Gould, Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard, it's probably the best known defender of evolution. And he wrote this. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record, that means going from this fossil to this one, persists as a trade secret of paleontology. <laughs> the evolutionary tree that adorns our textbook have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. However reasonable, it's not evidence of fossils. One of their own is even asked to admit, yeah, we kind of make it up because we have to. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to men, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Epicureans, who are mentioned in this passage, believe that God was outside the universe, basically didn't exist, and that matter is everything, so Live, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is all there is. The Stoics believe that God was in everything. So God can't create himself. So it's more of this amorphous kind of we're all gods together. And the point of that then is to live a, a life of reason. But either way. There is no God. Either way. This is who God really is. As we see him. 
as the one who is doesn't who made everything, who is Lord of everything, doesn't live in temples, and he isn't served by us. He gives it to us on his own. John Piper wrote it this way. His message to the world, the Christian gospel, is not a help wanted sign. It's a help available sign. God is not served as though He needs anything, but He gives to all people life and breath and everything. To those who feel morally self-sufficient, this is not good news. This is bad news. It threatens to take away our basis for boasting. But to those who feel morally desperate and hopeless before a holy and infinitely righteous God, this is very good news. In Rome, there is a building called the Pantheon that was it began to be built in 27 BC and was completed in 120 AD by Hadrian. So it took 140 years to build it. Its purpose was to unite the conquered people of the empire by providing a place in Rome where all of their gods could be represented. So it's a big circular room with alcoves. The Christians were offered a niche for Jesus. And they turned it down, saying, Never. He cannot stand beside other gods that are not true. 500 years later, 400 years later approximately, the Pantheon became a Christian church. And a few centuries later, a British lecturer was visiting Rome and he went in and noticed that all the niches were empty except one, and it contained a statue of Jesus. They took out all the others and left one. And what a statement that makes. You can claim there are other gods, but there aren't. Not, not the one we teach and preach and live and breathe. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation Every ethnos, so it's the Greek word ethnos, where we get the Greek word ethnic. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. If anyone says that Christianity is racist, has not read the Bible. It's just, you just can't. Right there, Paul is saying, we're all one. And we have Galatians. There's no male or female, Jew nor Greek. I mean, it, it's just, we're all one under God. God created all people equally in His image. All people are loved by God. All people are stained by sin. And all people can be redeemed and made right with God and have that stain removed. And that's where it breaks down for most people because they might agree with you for the first part, but they don't want to believe there's something like sin. And then they say, we are being intolerant. He asks, verse 27, that they should seek God. The word seek there is a classical Greek term used of philosophical investigation. And then notice what he says, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The meaning of the Greek in that feeling their way is like a blind man touching the walls to make sure he knows where he's going. It's not a grasping, it's a gentle touch, feeling this, trying to find him. And he is saying, I pray that you seek God and you will find him because he's actually not very far away. He's right here, right now. I read it before, but Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me, and when you search for me when you all, with all your heart, you can find me. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. This shows us how vain is all hope of escape from God. Where can we fly? Where can we hide? What can we do? The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished, Nahum 1, 3. And this is the solemn side of the matter. 
But there's a bright side to this great truth of God's nearness. If God is not far from each of us, then how hopeful it is for our seeking of Him. If you seek God and He is not far from me, I will surely find Him. You don't have to climb to heaven or dive into an abyss. He is where I stand, where I sit, and I can just come. Then in verse 28, Paul quotes two Greek writers. It says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. That is from Epimenides, written around 600 B.C. He was a Greek writer from Crete. They've actually found his writings and they can point to that passage. And then it says, and even some of your own poets have said it, a for we are indeed his offspring. And that is written by Eratus of Cilicia. Cilicia is the home region of Paul. Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia. It's one of his hometown poets. So it's somebody he probably grew up and when he was in school they had him read this poem and he remembered it and he brings it out in talking to these Greek philosophers. He uses their own material to make his point that God is right here. He's not far away. In verse 29, Then being God's offspring, we not ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's another little zinger about all the idols that are everywhere. By the way, the phrase God, God's offspring, if you ever talk to a Mormon, they will pull this out as proof that people were born as spiritual beings before they were born as physical beings. That's the verse they pull out right there. That being God's offspring, that God has offspring that you become a spirit child in heaven and are raised and then you are sent to earth. That is in the Mormon doctrine that's actually in their book, Gospel Principles, page 9. So just be aware, anyone pulls that out. Obviously it's a misreading of the text. The times of ignorance, verse 30, God overlooked. Another little trivia thing. If you have a King James Bible, it says, in times of ignorance, God winked. It actually says that. I had to look it up and went, no. But yeah, it's in the King James Bible. <coughs> A complete mistranslation of the Greek word overlooked. Uh, because our meaning of the wink is that it's like a nudge, nudge, know what I mean kind of thing, and it's okay. That isn't what it means. And it didn't even mean that back in King James' day. They just mistranslated it. God has always objected to sin. But He chooses when to judge it. And I think there's your difference. So for, I mean, how many times did did Israel fail God? And he kept having patience and giving them opportunity. It wasn't that he was overlooking, meaning that it's okay. It means he was not not, uh, passing judgment at that time. But then, the second half of the sentence, but now, he commands all people everywhere because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man he is appointed... And this is where Jesus comes in. And of this he gave assurance by raising him from the dead. This is the challenge that we have in presenting the gospel because there's this fear if we talk of judgment, we're going to lose our audience. Paul didn't shy away. The conclusion to all of this is that God will judge. You'll forget. They go into the common ground thing. They go into all that other stuff with with Paul and speaking to the Greeks, but they forget that he presented a message of judgment. If you don't repent, you will be judged by God. 
So there were a couple reactions at the end of the verse. There were three of them. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. They'd already called him a seed picker. You know, country bumpkin. There's others, it says here, we will hear you again. They delay it. And then verse 34, but some joined him and believed. So you have mockery, delay, and belief. And actually, that's still today. There are those who present something and they just go, oh, you're, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm not interested. Or they go, oh, that's interesting, but, you know, I, you know in, the, in, in the sake of peace, we'll just talk about it later. And then there are others who will say, what must I do to be saved? If the gospel isn't presented, none of these three actions would happen. And the third one is the most important. So the gospel isn't presented, they just go on living their life as if nothing was ever said. Two people are mentioned here, Dionysus the Areopagite and Damaris, a woman. Dionysus the Areopagite, according to church history, according to Eusebius, the ancient church historian, was a member of the Athens Council. He was one of the Supreme Court, what they had at that time. And to be a member, they had to have held a high office of state and had to be over 60 years old. So he wasn't a young man. He was an elder statesman of the city. And he believed, and Eusebius says, that he became the first bishop of Athens and later died a martyr. So Paul's presentation on Mars Hill brought a very powerful man to belief. Now there's some theory that Damaris was his wife and they have factually discovered in other literature that no, we just don't know who she was. But it is interesting that again, Paul's message brought both genders. It isn't just the leaders that they touted, it was also the women. And again, if the, anyone says the Bible is misogynistic and racist, they haven't read it. Because there's an example right there. It's a fascinating study how Paul put on the spot was able to find a starting place and then reasoned with them with very smart people and was able to present the gospel and the judgment of God all in this context. Um, and he wasn't run out of town. From all we can tell, he just simply decided once... Uh, Silas and Timothy joined him to move on to Corinth, which is what we will study next week, because we'll, he's going to move over there. By the way, just to give you an idea of our future, yeah. uh, Tom and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. So we have a section in, in Acts 18, which we'll do next week, and then we're, I'm gone and we're gone for three weeks. Um, Technically, historically, in the near the end of chapter 18 of Acts, Paul leaves Corinth and goes back home. It's the end of the second missionary journey. The third missionary journey begins with him going to, Ath uh, to Ephesus. And there's a, obviously a bit of controversy there. In from what we can tell around that time, a couple years later, he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. But because we, in our study, if we're going to finish Acts 18 and he's in Corinth, why don't we then study the Corinthians there? Rather than trying to be rigidly chronological, we will do thematically chronology. But here's the challenge. That means we do 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans. So for the next 25 years, <laughs> we will be tackling three of the longest and most theologically developed
books of the letters of Paul. But that's the plan. So we're going to step into Acts for one more week, and then we're going to just tackle 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, and then Romans, because that's the order in which they were written. Then, in 2025, we'll come back to the third missionary journey and pick up there, because after that comes books like Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. And, in late, and you have then intermixed in that is the journey that he made in the third missionary journey and also his trip to Rome. So it gets a little complicated, but just to let you know, as a little hint, we are going to be studying for a long time. All right, well, I'll dismiss. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, your word is full. It's complete. There's so much to look at, so much to absorb. And yet, by your grace, you have given us your word so that we can do this. And we are in a country that allows us to do this with freedom. Lord, thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.